Okay, people of Mandalore, how you doing today? Yeah, you guys having a good expo? All right. Well, welcome to our panel. Uh, this is, it's Mandalorian, Legal Issues in Pedro Pascal's other hit series. If you're here for this, you are in the right place. We witnessed over three seasons the trials and tribulations of Din Jaren, aka Mando, and Din Grogu, really? <laughs> so, uh, and we're now ready to talk about some legal issues in the series, and mostly concentrating on season three. So, spoiler warning, if you have not watched season three of The Mandalorian, that's completely your fault. So, <laughs> just be forewarned, all right? Okay, so, uh, are we ready to talk about legal issues in The Mandalorian? Yeah. Or yes, 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 yes. All right. So my name is Gregory Pang. I am a lawyer. I, my main practice is in entertainment law. And my co-panelists here, starting to my immediate left, is Adam Drew, who is... Where did your bio go here? You are a Crown Prosecutor for at least... Ah, there you are. Uh, prosecutor, Crown Prosecutor since 2010 and worked as well in criminal defense prior to that. Right. And... To my far left is Axel Howerton, who's a former entertainment journalist, crime novelist, and the author, uh, and, and the author Ellis Award-nominated author. So welcome to my co-panelists. And I've already given you the spoiler warning, and as well, this is a not legal advice, nothing that we, for part of me and Adam, and Axel as well, none of this is legal advice, this is just having fun. In fact, a lot of what we're talking about is actually not in our practice areas whatsoever. But we are real lawyers, you can look us up on the Law Society of Alberta. So the first thing um, th that we're going to do is we're going to have a look at the topics that we're going to cover. We might have to skip over a couple because this is only a 45 minute panel, and I probably just wasted four minutes of that. So we have about 41 minutes left. Bounty hunting, rehabilitation of former imperials, lawful transfer of political power, child endangerment, which we might skip over and subsume into the fifth topic in local parentis and adoption. Now, we're going to talk, let me just have a seat here. We're going to talk bounty hunting. So bounty hunting, gentlemen, take it away. I, I can tell you first thing, bounty hunting, don't, just don't, just don't. It's not, <laughs> it's, it's a crime to do that. Um, so that's, that's my piece. It is legal in many jurisdictions in the United States. Um, and I will say, uh, bounty hunting, if you're thinking, and, and maybe this will lead into what, uh, Axel wants to say, if you're thinking about bounty hunting in the Star Wars universe, as opposed to like what bounty hunting is like in, in our universe, uh, um, think of it more like a letter of mark for a privateer than like what we would consider a bounty hunter, like, you know, whatever, Dog the Bounty Hunter on TV. Usually what those guys are doing is tracking down escaped fugitives who skipped out bail and they owe a lot of money to somebody um, and they're going to do that for a cash reward. But in Star Wars, there's like a guild and there's like sanction and all of that is dependent on a functional state, right? Because you're, you're only immune to prosecution for bounty hunting in Star Wars or disintegration if you're doing it on behalf of uh, someone who doesn't, who, who, who uh, nobody gets to ask any questions of, right? If you're bounty hunting on behalf of the Empire, the Empire won't prosecute you, but uh, Jabba the Hutt might still blast you and vice versa. Um, so bounty hunting, there's no legal status for that in Canada. Do not do it. <laughs> <laughs> Axel, do you want to give us a little bit of a rundown of uh, some of the instances of bounty hunting in the series that we're talking about? Uh, well, I mean, what's interesting is we're the story itself comes from in the first place. Um, 
because originally it's kind of based on Clint Eastwood, Man with No Name movies, right? Which in turn were based on uh, Akira Kurosawa movies, Yojimbo, which in turn was based on a crime novel called Red Harvest by Dashiell Hammett, which had nothing to do with bounty hunting. <laughs> um, but it sets up this archetype of like the lone gunslinger who goes around gun for hire, uh, which is even the name of a, an episode this season, right? Um, and then it kind of it evolves from that initially in the first season into, again, more Japanese film reference. It turns into Lone Wolf and Cub, where there's a, a wandering Ronin with his son in a baby cart. Right? There's baby cart in Hades, baby cart in uh, Snow Demon, Hell, whatever. Um, and then into this third season, it comes back around again into the, the bounty hunting a little bit um, and even throws in some more detective tropes. There's that episode. Uh, <clears throat> what is that one called? I had a note here, but now I can't find it. Um, is it Guns for Hire? Oh, that is Guns for Hire, yeah. yeah. Uh, in Guns for Hire, where they go to the Pleasure Planet with Jack Black, and you know they're basically hired to conduct an investigation. But for the most part, it is set in the pattern that they established in Empire Strikes Back, where the Empire is hiring these rogue gunfighters to go out and capture people, right? First, it's Han Solo. Um, then they kind of allude to it being a bigger career choice in the Galactic Empire when you get to Return of the Jedi and there's a bunch of them hanging around. Um, and then it continues through all the legend stuff. And then we have a whole show about a bounty hunter, right? Um, but again, it's interesting where it comes from that it didn't initially come straight from bounty hunting, but it turned into that. And now it's kind of gone beyond that. It evolved past that. And then it, they bring it right back around at the very end of this season where it goes back to those spaghetti Western roots. And he's basically being, he's basically being made like an unofficial marshal, right? He's going to go out and capture the bad guys for the good guys that are running the government now. That's actually a, a interesting point with the government thing, which is that you see the samurai story, you see the Clint Eastwood Western story, you see these bounty hunter stories emerging out of what I would describe as an, uh, a lack of effective governance, right? The, the empire, it's very explicit. They don't have control over their outer systems. There, there's an imperial military that's quite effective in many, many cases, um, but there's not anything you would call a police force. So in terms of enforcing their laws, they often have no choice but to turn to, to a, a, a freelancer, a private uh, mercenary, or to planetary destruction. And there's very little nuance. <laughs> and that's Star Wars, right? Yeah, yeah not a, That's not what a, makes it fun. I mean, come on. You mean it, it depends on the planet, right? Because we did see where they have marshals yes. on Tatooine right. and Navarro. And then, you know, he comes in anyways to augment that. So that's exactly and, and you it depends on those individual governments in outer rim territories, which is wild west, right? Yeah. Or whether it's in, you know, in Coruscant, obviously they have security forces and police forces like they would have in New York city during the wild west era in the 1800s. Right. Yeah. 
And just of a, as a point of interest, like Adam, uh, you've let us know that bounty hunting is illegal in Canada, so don't do it. You're going to criminal code liability, I take it, for something like that? Yeah. Possible civil liability? Yeah, so in, in, in the United States, usually what you see when, when there's bounty hunters, these are people who are like state contracted to, to track down people who've skipped out on bail, and, and cash bail is the standard in the States. Uh, generally in Canada, you don't put up cash, you put up a promise to pay, uh, or you're released on what's, what used to be called your own recognizance, which is a no cash deposit, and you can forfeit that, but when you forfeit, when you skip bail in Canada, it's just, it's a very boring bureaucratic procedure, um, and nobody, uh, other than the police is going to kick down your door and drag you back to face your charges. Um, if you tried to do that in this country, there are, there are criminal code offenses for everything you could possibly do for interfering with police investigation, for assaulting a person, for unlawful detention. Um, I, I mean, the criminal code is like a massive tome and I'm not going to cite every section, but it, it's a <laughs> lot of things. You would get in big trouble. So, of interest. I just looked up the law of bounty hunting in California. They don't call it them bounty hunters. They call them, quote, bail fugitive recovery persons. Okay, and here are the, apparently this was like all like wild, <laughs> wild west kind of thing, and they recently reg started to regulate this, so they must be licensed, they must have proper documentation before apprehending a bail fugitive, they must not rep misrepresent themselves as being law enforcement, they must provide at least six hours of notice to law local law enforcement that they are going to apprehend a bail fugitive, absent exigent circumstances, and they cannot use excessive force to apprehend. <laughs> so no disintegration. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, or or, or beheadings. You know, no, no. Can I bring you a, carbonate? Uh, I can bring you in hot, or bring you in, or bring you in warm, or bring you in cold. Right. That was his line. Right. So that's that's the question: is where does carbonate <laughs> fall in that there you go. spectrum? Oh, and just uh, for those of you who are listening carefully, we'll be doing some prize giveaways. Axel, as I mentioned, is an author, so he has some and prize publisher, and I have some packages of books and shirts and stuff. So we'll do that at the end. We have some trivia, or not trivia, but whoever can answer questions first, if you listen really carefully, then you can get your hands on that. And I have a few patches, some Mandalorian-themed small little patches, a couple of mythosaurs, and this is the way patch that we'll give away as well. So you can stick around the rest of the, uh, for the, to the end of the panel. Uh, you can have your chance at that. All right, let's move on from bounty hunting to now the rehabilitation of former Imperials. And Adam, you had added this to our notes. Can you let us know sure. why this is sketchy? This is wild, okay? <laughs> like, the New Republic are supposed to be the good guys. And I get that, yes, there has to be a, a, a transfer of power when a new state comes in and takes over the, the remnants of the old state. But they're using, like, mind control techniques and brainwashing that obviously isn't effective, as we see in Season 3. Like, it does nothing, um, the only person who seems remotely rehabilitated ends up getting betrayed and then, like, mind-wiped by his fellow rehabilitated prisoners. So, this is not... Like, if if there was a Geneva Convention in the Star Wars universe, I mean, the fact that the New Republic, which is, again, they're supposed to be the good guys, uh, are also guilty of what I would call just straight-up war crimes is utterly shocking to me. Um and maybe maybe I'm I'm just like I'm I'm old school and I'm like okay there's a light side and a dark side and now we're in, it's it's the 21st century and, and I don't know nothing nothing's the same anymore. 
So uh, speaking of Geneva Conventions, I, I, I beg to differ. I'm going to defend the New Republic a little uh, there, Adam. Okay. <laughs> so here we go. I pulled up some uh, excerpts from our Geneva Convention in our real world, the Geneva Convention uh, relative to the treatment of prisoners of war. Article 13, prisoners of, wars, pr- prisoners of war must at all times be humanely treated. Uh, I think they're pretty... Dr. Pershing, you know, they got nice accommodations and stuff like that. They get fed. Subject you know. to mind control torture. And and they were not necessarily mind controlling. We'll get to the mind flare in a second. <laughs> Article 17, no physical or mental torture nor any other form of coercion may be inflicted on prisoners of wars to secure them from them information of any kind whatsoever. Okay. okay. Yeah, I know that there's rehabilitation, but I don't think that we necessarily saw on screen mind control. Did we? And they weren't trying to get information. That's right. From it. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's, that's right. good technicality. <laughs> we don't know how that's going to turn out yet. Article 14. Prisoners of war are entitled in all circumstances to respect for their persons and their honor. And the only thing I saw here that might violate that is that they took away their names and assigned them with all numbers. So there we might be a little bit in that gray or offside area on Article 14. In Article 42, the use of weapons against prisoners of war, especially against those who are escaping or attempting to escape, shall constitute an extreme measure which shall always be preceded by warnings appropriate to the circumstances. So there he was, Dr. Pershing, when he was doing his escape, or not escape, but uh, his theft of the equipment, the lab equipment, he didn't, they didn't use the weapons on him. Now, the mind flare. Now, here's where we get into some, a little bit of... <laughs> so, they were only supposed to turn it on, like, what, one out of 11 there on, on the dial to... I, I forget what uh, the um, Moncalmari guy said to, to make him feel good or something like that, right? But they left him alone. They left Eli Kane, the other former Imperial, maybe not former Imperial now, alone in that booth without having some kind of security measure on that mind flare or not mind flare so that she could just crank it up. What kind of liability are we talking about here against the New <laughs> Republic for allowing that to happen? It's it's shocking. I mean, but then again, this is this is a civilization that doesn't believe in guardrails over their bottomless pits. So you know what? It's probably pretty standard. Actually, got anything on that? I mean, like I said, they, we don't really know what they did or what happened to Pershing yet. They said explicitly that it not necessarily a mind flare. It was a modified mind flare. And, you know, to be honest, I think there's connotations that carry over from other shows with mind flares. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that give it a bad connotation that may not be intrinsic to the machinery itself. And, and oh, there's a calamari over there. Um, oh, no, there's a, a, a historical precedent for this, of course, as well. At the end of the Second World War, Operation Paperclip is this like allied project to take all of these like high ranking. I mean, I hate to say the word Nazis, but they were literally Nazis at scientists involved in their various programs and then recruit them into rocketry programs for the the allied nations seizing war material so when we talk about the mind flayers being seized and being repurposed for the new republic like that i i don't know what's going through the minds of the writers of the mandalorian but there's certainly historical precedent and there's it's it's not like they're light on the uh, world war ii imagery in star wars just curious in the crowd here just by a show of hands, who believes that the New Republic is offside in their treatment of prisoners of war? One, 
offside. Oh, okay, okay. And who believes that they're okay? They're a-okay. Show of hands. <laughs> Just a few. Okay, okay. Mostly offside. All right. <laughs> now I'll play devil's advocate. I mean, who thinks that compared to the empire? <laughs> 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 Somebody in this room's taken uh, debate. <laughs> nice. All right, so let's move on then. Ah, this one's really interesting. The law. And that's a beautiful shot. The lawful. <laughs> Sorry, my wife just <laughs> snorted at me back there. <laughs> lawful transfer of political power. So this is really interesting in that we have strung out throughout, I think, the part of season two and then and stretches back to the Clone Wars and then main subject or main, main topic of season three is this transfer of political power. That how does one become the ruler of Mandalore? And one of the things that it, it can be that, that we learned that was uh, very apparent is that whoever can win the Darksaber in combat I'll just read a couple quick excerpts here, is that the armorer stated, whoever wields it can rule all of Mandalore. She goes on to say, it is said one warrior will defeat 20 and multitudes will fall before it. However, it is not, if it is not one in combat and falls into the hands of the undeserving, it will be a curse unto the nation. And then, late, and then in another episode, in, episode uh, in season two, Moff Gideon said it must be one in battle in order for her to wield the Darksaber again, Bo-Katan, she would always, she would need to defeat you Din or Mando in combat, and then to which he said, I yield, it's yours. And he responded, Oh no, it doesn't work that way. The Darksaber doesn't have power. The story does. Without that blade, she's a pretender to the throne. So here is interesting because we have a technologically advanced spacefaring civilization who transfers political power, the most important position, like the ruler of Mandalore, by story. So we have to reconcile that. It's like, can that happen? So we have a lot of cultures today that story is very important to the fabric of the culture itself. So we can allow for that, and especially in something like Star Wars. So it's it's really interesting, this kind of, uh, can I call it a trope, Axel? Can you comment on the use of this kind of uh, topic? Or, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's something that has historical basis. Um, you know, even things back as far as, you know, the... Roman Empire, when emperors, when they started having emperors, um, they had Julius Caesar, Octavian, and, but in any case, after Julius Caesar was killed, at that point, they had like three rulers that shared power. After Julius Caesar was killed, they basically split it between Octavian and then Mark Antony kind of basically just announced that he was going to be emperor of this part of the world. And Octavian had designs on the other part of the world. Once Octavian defeated Mark Antony, he basically just took over everything and they made him emperor of the world as far as Romans were concerned. And it was passed down not necessarily by um, by birth like you know most of the modern monarchies that we know of. It wasn't necessarily passed by combat, but it would be whoever was being promoted the best through the Roman Senate and sold to the people would kind of get pushed into power. And that went on for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. That's been borrowed, obviously, like most things in human history for fiction. 
because that's just that's how our minds work. We hear something and then we modify it. We turn it into something new. And that's basically how stories come about, right? There's very few stories that you could look at that you could say was entirely new. Everything's fed from your experiences and from things that you pick up, from things that you overhear, stories that you hear, and it just kind of all gets meshed together. And nowhere is that more evident than in Star Wars, which borrows from, you know, World War II, action movies, uh, serial action movies from when George Lucas was a kid, um, Flash Gordon, right? Uh, samurai movies, spaghetti westerns, like everything. Everything that was part of the pop culture when George Lucas was developing, pulled all that together, threw it out into space and created this universe. And everybody that's participated in it since then, there's absolutely no way that Star Wars itself wasn't a touchstone feeding into that. But then everything else that they'd ever read or watched or learned in school all feeds into that. So there's all these millions of different things that get fed into that. And one of them absolutely is the idea that stories create power and the idea that politics are ruled by influence and by influencing the mass amount of people with stories. I mean, look at what's going on in the States right now with Donald Trump, right? That guy 100% has zero experience, training, or qualification to lead a country. But they sold that so well and they sold him so well that he became the president of the United States and one of the most powerful people on earth. That's a good segue to talking about stories and creativity into something very dry and boring, which is what uh, I like to uh, geek out on. It's about constitutionality. So you, when you weave these stories, that, that these are stories that may have been uh, part of Mandalore for thousands of years, and in my headcanon, thinking as a uh, former political science student and now lawyer is that, okay, so how does this work in this technologically advanced civilization where story is very important is that they have, and hear me out on this, they have an unwritten constitution or per perhaps partly a written one. So in Canada, our constitution is largely, it's codified or codified in our, first our uh, Constitution Act of 1867 or Constitution of 1867, excuse me, and then of uh, in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So, but in the UK, it's a matter of, it's large, or not largely, but partly an unwritten constitution. So my theory here is that, is that the Mandalorian unwritten constitution states something about this sword that doesn't, not necessarily codifies, but this is, became constitutional norm and then practiced, and now it's part of their constitution, how they pass down power. So, and this part, I think would be maybe the either the best for us or the worst Mandalorian episode ever is that once they reestablish the society and they reform their courts, there's going to be a reference case going to the Supreme Court of Mandalore. <laughs> and the Supreme Court of Mandalore, the governments that may be led by Bo-Katan there, will send this as a reference just like in, uh, they do for uh, our um, what's called uh, our Supreme Court of Canada and our courts of appeal. I, can, I think they can take reference cases from the government. It's like, how legal is this in 
uh, in accordance with our constitution, international law, like they, they did with the uh, succession of Quebec reference, yeah. right, from like 20, 30 years ago. So this is something that they'll, I think they'll have a whole episode just for us legal geeks here. <laughs> uh, 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 um, sorry, a, a reference case to the Supreme Court of Mandalore, and they will have this beautiful argument and written decision to confirm or maybe not confirm the uh, the succession of the of power to Bo-Katan. I, I think, um, speaking of Bo-Katan specifically, I think if if you watch, and I'm going to say something to make most of you think I'm the bad guy, but if you watch the um, the, I think, vastly overrated Clone Wars animated series and watch the uh, I, I you know what I think about half of it's really good and then half of it I was just like please more more Jedi stuff please um, but uh, the um, Mandalore under Bo-Katan's sister am I remembering that correctly yep. was a straight up lineage like they just inherited power straight down um, during that sort of imperial phase. And so now this idea that she has to have the dark saber and I guess be sufficiently persuasive, I would say they're actually edging towards a more legitimate form of governance than they had um, previously prior to having their civilization uh, virtually destroyed. Yeah. And that brings up an interesting uh, point there because the dark saber was, as we saw at the end of season three was destroyed or, or severely damaged or something like that. But at least that we saw that there was seemed to be no problem with Bo-Katan at least lighting symbolically maybe as the leader of this group or maybe not symbolic, maybe the, as the actual official leader of this group or civilization relighting the Great Forge, right? So perhaps, since you mentioned that, that was Duchess Satine, I think that was her name? Yeah. Yeah, Duchess Satine. She did not have, obviously did not have the Darksaber, but the Darksaber might not be the only way under the Mandalorian Constitution that one can assume power. So, yeah, there we go. All right. One, one more thing on lawful yeah. transfer of power. The episode, the, the, the Jack Black and Lizzo episode, um, they refer to their planet as the last surviving direct democracy and that they are the elected leaders of a direct democracy. That's not what direct democracy means. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is a direct democracy? A direct democracy <laughs> would require that most public, so it would, most public action would, would require the vote of the populace, the entire populace. They wouldn't have like a standing elected executive. That's a representative democracy like 99.9% .9 of all democracies today. But could we make room for the possibility that perhaps they're just the elected, you know, the heads of state to, to be the face of the government? But they're not necessarily, you know, like how we elect our members of the legislative assembly, member, you know, and members of parliament to go represent us in a in a, in a governing governing body. But rather, they're just the heads of state. Certainly, but, that, that's certainly possible. Yeah. We didn't really yeah. get into the, the nitty gritty of yeah. their legal system. What is implied in there because they do say that the citizens vote on everything, which is why they have so many droids because the droids do all the work. The people right. sit around voting on things. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> sounds pretty good to me. All right, so let's move on. Okay, so we will. <laughs> I can't see these slides. I assume they're very funny. Uh, it, it's just it's just Mando with with uh, holding a gun, blasting something, and and Grogu's in, in his oh. arms. So, yeah, yeah, very cute. Yeah, and very dangerous, and maybe illegal. Um, so, so we are going to touch on this in this discussion, but I thought we'd kind of wrap it, roll it into something called in local parentis and adoption. So just as a background here, so before Din officially adopted Grogu at the end of season three, he was acting in in loco parentis. Well, uh, it's a Latin term for in the place of a parent, 
right? So this is something that happens today, you know, mainly applying to teachers or other people uh, having, uh, they have charge or have or they're taking care of a child and they're acting in local parentis because they can I'm make decisions. I'm doing that for, myself, actually. You're doing oh, that yourself? Nice. Okay, fantastic. Excellent. So with that, okay, we're going to get into a little bit of... Wait, before I continue on that, there's no gunfights involved. There in, are no gunfights. <laughs> and... Uh, very little in the way of uh, taking this kid to dangerous situations on foreign planets. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> I try anyways. So let's get to adoption of Grogu. And here I want to have a little bit of uh, perhaps some debate. I'm, I'm, I don't know which side. We haven't discussed this in detail. <laughs> I don't know which side of the debate that you might be on. But would Din or Mando be a good parent, okay, be a good adoptive parent. And I'd like to hear from the, some <laughs> of the crowd on this as well, okay? So let me give you the background here. Okay, so in Alberta, let's assume that Mandal Mandalore has some kind of similar laws on adoption. Uh, in Alberta, uh, adoption is governed, it's very complex, I don't practice this area, so I, I just pulled up some of the rules from the legislation. It's governed by the Child, Youth, and Family Enhancement Act, and the what needs to happen is that there needs to be a home study report by a licensed social worker to assess the uh, adoptive parent's suitability as a parent, an adoptive parent, and their capability and willingness to assume responsibility of a parent toward the child. So this social worker would then have to assess Mando's background, lifestyle, and ability to provide a safe and loving home. Okay, so this is also probably going to be the second worst episode of The Mandalorian, where we have a social worker coming in <laughs> to Mando's ranch with, it, with their notepad, and then seeing, looking at his background, lifestyle, and ability to provide a safe and loving home for Grogu. There's one little snag, though. How old is Grogu again? 50. Okay. So under our legislation, this is for an adult to adopt a child, which is defined as someone under 18. So, you know, this is Star Wars, right? So we have to maybe allow a little bit of leeway for that. You know, like, okay, so maybe we're talking about mental maturity or something like that, or maybe there's some equivalence to how Grogu's species grows up. So let's just say, for the sake of argument, because we can go down the path of guardianship, but I don't, I don't want to do that. I, I don't know a whole lot about that one. So let's, let's talk about adoption, because this is funner. Because let's say Mando filed an application, I believe it's an application, to adopt Grogu. Axel. Do you think that Mando would be a suitable adoptive parent? For well, Grogu? I went through every episode of the three seasons, <laughs> and there were no less than 38 incidents of him taking that baby into a highly dangerous, inappropriate situation. <laughs> Everything from being kidnapped multiple times, dog fights, and by dogfights, I mean, you know, in spaceships flying at each other at high speeds, uh, sometimes light speeds, uh, kidnapped by stormtroopers and abused in custody, uh, armed standoff with Moff Gideon and his right-wing terrorist militia, um, some other good ones. He left it. I mean, he basically, when they went to Mandalore, he left the kid in the car with the windows up. <laughs> 
in Guns for Hire, he just left that kid with Lizzo, who he'd met three minutes before, and went off to go hunt droids, right? And left Grogu there for, seemed like days. Took him into dangerous caves where he'd already been attacked by Morlocks. And then, you know, let him float around through dangerous caves. Things falling everywhere, rusted out machinery, uh, giant underwater bay that he had no idea how deep was. And once he did find out how deep was, no way the baby would have gotten out of there, right? And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. So, I mean, does he have good intentions? Sure. Does he have the best judgment? Not so much. So to the question then, Axel, just to round that out there. Hold on. I've, oh, I've, okay, I've, 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 now it's my turn to play devil's advocate. Um, <laughs> so by the standards of Alberta law, by the standards of any you know normal modern day thinker, this is, of course, terrible. By the standards of Mandalorian parenting, not actually that bad, considering <laughs> we see in the episode, we see no fewer than two megafauna attacks on the armor's uh, uh, covert uh, while they're, they're in hiding. One of which a giant sea monster comes out of the water. Nobody even seems that surprised when it eats a bunch. There are kids playing on that beach, and that sea monster just eats a bunch of them. And they're like, well, "Yep, this." Paz Vizsla did say, "Kids go inside, <laughs> go in the house." And then Paz Vizsla's own son is captured by the second megafauna, the giant flying monster. That again, everybody's just like, "Yep, this happens. It happens." Oh yeah, three o'clock Sunday. Yep, giant space monsters. Mandalorians are terrible parents. So their baseline, by that standard, I think Din's actually not a not a bad dad. They did also take Ragnar to the edge of that bottomless bay as well. So, so the answer then, okay, Axel, can Mando, given his background, lifestyle, ability to provide a safe and loving home for Grogu, yes or no, is he a good... I think there's potential there. I think he needs to take some parenting classes. <laughs> Possibly, you know, infant first aid, just in case. Because, I mean, baby Grogu can't, maybe can't do the hand thing. You know, come on, baby. <laughs> do the hand, do the magic hand thing. Uh, I don't know that he could do that to himself, so. So, conditional yes. Yes, conditionally. Con- conditional yes. And, <laughs> and you? This is the way. This is the way. Okay, okay, perfect. <laughs> perfect. That's good. All right. <laughs> It's pandering, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so how many of you, hands up, believe that Mando would make a good adoptive parent considering the context and circumstances? Hand up. Yes. Okay. And how many know Mando is not a suitable parent? Okay. A few responsible people in this crowd. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. Okay. The, the four of you put your hands up. You can all babysit my kid. The rest of you, no way. <laughs> Though, if you've ever seen a a lone wolf and cub movie you know that this is like it's fine yeah they're or, fine or read that the graphic There's novel no they're blood amazing flying three feet through the air people losing heads it's good so we have a we have 10 minutes left and uh, some time for some open questions uh anybody have some questions Can you get, anybody have some questions you come up to the microphone please yes and then we'll do our giveaways in the part rehabilitation of imperials uh it was mentioned about uh like withholding their names and giving them numbers. At the time I watched that, I was under the impression that was kind of part of a witness protection program. It was not taking their names away. 
it was more like their identity could put them at risk. That's a good point. Yeah. At least that's I the way I interpret that. it. That did not occur when you watched that part? <laughs> no, not at all. I think, I think that's a good, that's a very generous interpretation. No, because uh, I, I mean, I uh, when they're having their conversation, it's a bunch of former imperial officers. They're well, not clearly gonna, some of them know each you know, other anyway. Exactly. Right? So what's the point of them hiding their identities from each other and using the numbers or, that they've been given by the government? Or possibly hiding their identities from the new republic population when they're walking around. But they dress them in standardized uniforms and require with them to... Markings. Yeah, with markings. They, they've <laughs> publicly shamed them as former imperials to begin with. Good point. Good, good, good anyway, question, though. Thank also, you. Also, they shoot that episode like everything is a scary film noir, whereas like every other episode, there's daytime scenes. And there's and no they, daytime scenes in that episode. They did at least stop short of tattooing it on. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll say it. Sorry. No. Anyway. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Next. So in the uh, you can episode... pull that with, up. Uh, <laughs> uh, in the episode where uh, they're having Grogu in the cave, he's constantly eating a sentient couple's children. <laughs> and Mando doesn't stop him on that. <laughs> Do you have any ideas on, like, would there be a legal system of, oh, um, yeah, you're in trouble for letting him eat people. Well, he he does, you know admonish him a few times but the same way like when i tell my kid don't eat three bags of gummy bears right so that, like, that was the that was the frog lady episode right stop yeah. yeah and again total lack of of central legal authority in the new republic so i i can i, I can maybe make an excuse for why that might not be murder or genocide of their species or something like that it's it's because those eggs, I don't think they were fertilized yet at that point, if I'm remembering correctly. True. So they're pre-embryotic. Therefore, it's just, a, it's just an egg. So he, he may have been doing something not appropriate, but uh, maybe not something criminal necessarily. Uh, it's still theft. It's still theft. Okay. <laughs> okay next question. <laughs> Hello. It might not be a competition, but... Who's the more suitable guardian, the Guardians of the Galaxy or Mando? Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have, like, uh, of, of Groot? Yeah, as opposed yeah. to Grogu? Um, that's, I... So the the, diff the difference is in the Marvel Universe, there are relatively safe places they could take that kid. Potentially to grow up, there's there's no equivalent of a safe place in the Star Wars universe. Every place is pretty bad, I think. To That's be fair, vote. they Whoa. do frequently take baby Groot into the middle of yeah. you know firefights and apocalypses, and it's like at the beginning of Guardians Two. But when, yeah, yeah. But there's like five of them watching him instead of one distracted gunslinger. But Groot can like Groot can regenerate from like. Have we ever seen any evidence that Groot can actually die? Maybe there's an exception to be carved out there. Oh, well, the original one, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> next question. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, if there was like an adoption slash like foster care agency in the Star Wars universe, do you really think it would like operate by the same laws that ours does? Because if it was like foster care, like. I wouldn't think that, like, taking an alien child to, like, different planets, finding a home would really work. I don't know that there's really, like, is, is there much precedent in Star Wars for other things like that, aside from Luke being just kind of dumped on his adopted brother? The massacre of the Jedi younglings. Right? 
<laughs> and then yeah, and then they get massacred. There's there's no good parenting in the Star Wars universe. Uh, Zero. I like I like the question, but I think the answer is definitely no. We were, just, we're, just, having, we're just having fun with it, it's you know. Like, like just the organics. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much the only yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Great. The I only mean, good role models in the entire universe. I mean, uh, similarly, even the Jedi going around and asking, hey, can you give us your baby? We think he yes. has yeah. a little, yeah. little bit of a high of an M count. Can you just give us your baby because we're going to come change him? Yeah, asking no. is a really strong way to put that. Yeah, you're, yeah they're coming in armed, right? Like, you know, Can you say no? We're the closest this galaxy has to police and we want to take your kid. Ooh, not good, not good. <laughs> Let's do some giveaways now then. Do you have a question, Axel? I do. I have a couple questions. I mentioned it one time. What is the name of Paz Vizsla's son who takes the oath at the end of the season three finale? Hands to the back. One. Yeah. Okay. And you get a prize pack. Come up here. Now I have these two books that are my books. The ones that are in the bag there. Hang on a second. Werewolves or psychopaths? <laughs> and then there's still one more and there's uh, this is a, a Western Writers of America award winning short story collection and uh, also a bunch of the stories in here won Crime Writers of Canada awards uh, this is weird store, weird western stories of which I have uh, like three in here under different pen names and a bunch of other local writers and international writers, and my book, which is a werewolf. What was the name of the Mandalorian Jedi that created the Darksaber, if anybody knows that? Here. No. It's like his great, 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 great granddaddy. Gloved hand there, yeah. Tarvisla. Oh, yeah, nice. I don't know if these are age-appropriate, but... (laughs) Okay, now for some patches here and some law questions now. And if anybody wants those signed, and like, why would you? But if you do, I'll be over here for like three minutes. We talked about a Geneva, I referenced a Geneva Convention. Can someone tell me what is the title, the full title of the Geneva Convention, which we spoke of? The Geneva Convention, go ahead. Very close, and you? Okay, all right. All right, so you get a, uh, what's called, Mythosaur patch, sir. Next question, and we're almost done here, for another Mythosaur patch, this one, time-colored one. What does in local parentis? Oh, I saw orange, yeah. Yep. There you go, yeah. Okay. And I lost the other patch. Okay, I think that's it. Okay. Everyone, thank you very much for your participation. Thank you for your time. Appreciate you. Thank Thank you you to the panelists. Adam, Axel, thank you very much. Everyone, this is the way. Have a good day. And if anybody wants to ask me about juridical duels, which I didn't get to talk about, I will be in the hallway. (laughs) Oh, you should have talked about that. We did time.